Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. Before we get started, I want to let you know that in this episode, we're going to be talking about sexual assault. So please take care. Earlier this month, Hockey Canada officials testified before a parliamentary committee. They were being questioned about Hockey Canada's response to allegations that eight players in the Canadian Hockey League sexually assaulted a woman. We welcome the opportunity to respond to the members' questions regarding the allegations involving members of the 2017-2018 National Junior Hockey Team and the recent settlement Hockey Canada reached with the plaintiff in that matter. Hockey Canada gets funding from the federal government, and that's now been indefinitely frozen. The alleged assault happened in 2018, in London, Ontario, after a Hockey Canada Foundation gala. The woman, who remains unnamed, alleges that, after the gala, she was at a bar with some CHL players. According to her statement of claim, they bought her drinks, she became intoxicated, and then went back to a hotel room with one of the hockey players. She alleges that he then invited seven other players into the room, and that they engaged in sexual acts, none of which she consented to. None of this has been tested in court, and no one's been charged. In April, the woman filed a lawsuit against Hockey Canada, the Canadian Hockey League, and the eight unnamed players who allegedly assaulted her. TSN reported that they settled the case. This isn't the first time we're hearing about sexual assault and hockey, though. And these types of allegations, they're often accompanied by a culture of silence. If we keep having these absolutely retrograde notions about certainly secrecy, certainly attitudes towards women, if these things still rule the day in 2022, then we really can't in good conscience, I don't think, market this as a safe sport for young players to get themselves into. Taylor McGee is an assistant professor of sports management at Brock University. He studies hockey history and masculinity in the sport. He's on the show today to help us understand what makes the culture of hockey so different from other sports. This is The Decibel. Taylor, it's great to have you here. Thanks for doing this. Thanks so much for having me. Can I just start by asking you, what was your reaction when you heard about the settled lawsuit and, and its allegation? I'm sure most Canadians are were probably not stunned, shocked, horrified. Though not to say that these things were not horrifying or shocking. The problem is we've been inundated with so many stories like this that uh, certainly it was like, okay, all right, what's this about? Rather than, holy moly, can you believe it? I can't imagine anything like this happening uh, within hockey. And I think that speaks volumes uh, to what's going on here. Was there any part of the situation that that surprised you? Oh, certainly. So there are many surprising elements to this specific story. The length of time between now and the, the investigation is one of them. So you have eight accused here out of a team of, of, of 24 roughly players. And many of those players are currently National Hockey League players. They're playing professionally all over the world um, and and stand to lose a great deal from being associated with a scandal like this. And you would think that in a situation like this, and maybe there are legal compulsions here that are keeping them from doing this, but you would think that the compulsion to say, hey, I am not involved in this 
would be would be immense. You'd want to clear your name. You'd want to come out and say, you know, I know about this incident, which likely every single member of that team, every single staff member knows something about this, I would venture. Um, I'd want to get out. You'd think, you, any listener would think to themselves, you know, I'd probably want to get them to try and clear my name. And the fact that no one has come forward and, and has sought to exonerate themselves, it certainly doesn't serve any of the individuals uh, not to do that. And the question we got to start to wonder is, okay, well, then why, why do this? Certainly no one is thinking of the victim here, but certainly uh, they're, they're willing to absorb a share of the guilt here just to, to not deal a little bit of the blame. And that is an extremely uh, spooky sort of dynamic that's developed here when you have players that are willing to be associated through uh, guilt by their association rather than, than exonerate themselves by coming forward and say, I had nothing to do with it. So that certainly was surprising to me when I was learning about this is, is I couldn't believe that even it doesn't need to be a press conference, even if it wasn't quietly leaked through an agent to an insider to, you know, one of the hundreds of beat reporters that cover the league, you know, there's such an advanced infrastructure in dealing in secrets in professional mm-hmm. sports. I, I can't believe that this is this has been so tightly guarded and it speaks to a very, very, very strong culture of silence uh, regarding yeah. violence in, in hockey. And we should just, of course, point out, of course, none of this has been proved in court. These are allegations uh, that have happened, but nothing actually has been proven in, in court at this point. This specific situation, when the news of this, the settlement of the lawsuit broke, Hockey Canada issued a statement. And I, wa- I want to read to you so we can talk about it. So Hockey Canada said, quote, they're deeply troubled by the very serious allegations of sexual assault, end quote. Um, the organization acknowledged it had learned about the alleged assault in, in 2018, the year it's said to have happened, uh, and that it contacted police and hired a law firm to investigate what happened. Since then, we've learned that the investigation was incomplete, in part because the woman who made the allegations didn't participate and, and none of the players were compelled to. What do you make of how Hockey Canada has handled this investigation? If you're Hockey Canada you have to walk this fine line between running yourselves like a business and also sort of being the custodians of this sort of public trust, uh, which is our national game. And in that situation here, I think that the way that Hockey Canada has been handling this, and I'm certainly not the first person to say this, but the ways in which they've handled this are, are extremely troubling. And if you look at the first statement itself, which you just read there, uh, which says basically, look, you know, well, we couldn't do anything because, you know, the victim wouldn't name themselves and uh, the players didn't have to uh, participate. So we didn't make them. So just to be clear, though, Hockey Canada did not compel their players to, partic- to participate in this investigation. So the way that this is approached, is this kind of to avoid, I guess, dealing with a cultural issue like within the organization? I mean, possibly. Certainly, I think that... Uh, if you compel these players to talk, the risky run is that they're going to talk. They're going to share details. They're certainly going to not want to fall on their swords necessarily. They're going to probably explain, you know, things that maybe seem normal to them about the situations that are going on. And that's the risk they run here. It's not necessarily that they won't get good information about this specific case. I think they would, uh, certainly. But that doesn't seem to be the goal. The goal seems to be don't spread the fire. What do you think... Is at the root of this issue here, Taylor? Man, I mean, that's a, that's a billion dollar question. It's like, how do we, you know, what, what, what is causing this? Yeah. First of all, archaic and barbaric notions uh, about women is, is at the heart of it, certainly. There's no way around that. And that is endemic throughout sport. It is a part of, unfortunately, organized sport culture and on the, on the boys and men's side, absolutely. It bears a little bit of mentioning, again, this, this specific story, that it involves the World Junior Team. This is something that, again, outside the borders of Canada, it is difficult to explain and contextualize 
the World Junior Hockey Championships because it has become a team that carries national significance. It's not just a random collection of good players. Uh, it's not even just a team that represents a city. This is the World Junior team. If this was a Junior A team and this was some assault that was going on in in Swift Current in the CHL or something like that, we can think to ourselves, oh, well, it's a dark corner of Canada. Maybe no one's looking. Maybe it's something that uh, is taking place because of a lack of supervision. And your question was about how can this happen? Well, that tells me a lot about the creme de la creme. If this is absolutely players who are trained in how to deal with the media, they're trained in how to comport themselves. If they're still doing these horrible things, it's because they believe it to be okay and normal. Mm-hmm. So... I guess when you think about the idea of some sports, especially hockey, like violence is really embedded in in the sport of hockey itself. Is it fair to expect that the locker room culture and the culture around the game wouldn't be any different? If violence is a part of hockey, well, it's not a part of all hockey in the same sort of way. And and violence writ large is pretty well regulated in hockey today. And it's something that I study myself. And again, there is absolutely no possible reason in the world why a sport that would allow you to hit a player on the ice uh, would translate into an acceptability of, of the notion that sexual violence or violence towards women is permissible. So if that's, we can't blame the rules of the game or the culture on the ice, that's too easy, right? I mean, that's something that uh, is going to lead us into a dead end uh, because that would essentially say that like, well, look, well, as long as the game is still violent, we're going to have violence against women. And that, if that's true, then we need to shut the whole thing down immediately. Let's talk about the culture off the ice then, because you mentioned locker rooms. So so maybe we can get into that a little bit. As much as we know about what happens on the ice outside of locker rooms, what don't people understand about what happens inside the locker room, the dynamic there? Every sport is a different sort of dressing room, locker room, changing room culture. Every last one of them, whether you're a swimmer, whether you're a baseball player in the dugout, whether you're a football player in football locker rooms. But I like using football as an example because it's also a sport that has a certain high degree of violence, has a lot of problems with it as well. But the football locker room and the hockey locker room are very different. Football players hang out with other position players for the most part, but it's a very, 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 very different group of people. In a 54-man football roster, you're going to find people that don't look anything like you. Uh, You're going to have people with different skin color than you, that grew up with different face than you. Very, 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 very diverse sets of experiences. If you want to become a professional baseball player, for instance, because of where the game is popular and because of the experiences growing up there, you're going to meet players from Latin America, Central America, South America, players with, from Venezuela, the Dominican Republic, uh, Ecuador, you name it. And then you get to hockey. And say, let's say you're Mitch Marner, who's a very, very uh, famous player for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And um, well, Mitch Marner has basically played his entire professional career in a 500 square kilometer box between the London Knights and the Toronto Maple Leafs. And he's doing it surrounded by people who look basically like he does. And I'm not here to pitch and pick up Mitch Martin, it's just an evocative example. But, but hockey players can go through their entire hockey existence without that sort of experience. Where these locker rooms become these homosocial spaces where they only are interacting with people that look like them. They only have a sense of, you know, this is something that we all understand because we're part of the same group. And the behavior outside of that dominant group, whether it's, you know, cultural or otherwise, is seen as a threat to it. And is that just because the nature of the sport, like it costs a lot to get your kid into hockey because you got to pay for the equipment, you got to have the time to drive them there. And so it ends up being kind of a certain socioeconomic class that engaged from the start. Is that kind of the root of it? That, that's that's essentially it. But but generally speaking, again, the origins of hockey going back to 1870s was upper middle class Anglophone whites. How much have we changed from that very, 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 very first game? 
the answer is not a great deal, probably. Many listeners can think of this and think to themselves, I can think of a player that doesn't fit that description. You'll see it because the exception proves the rule. And can you just kind of fill, fill this whole thing in for me then, Taylor? So how does this lack of diversity, how could this lead to this, this kind of, this culture of silence? The only way in which you are able to convince individuals to absorb the guilt by association and not you know, publicly declare their innocence is by enforcing a notion that we who are on this team understand what happened. We get it. We know what's happened here. Right? We can't let this get out. We can't allow others to sort of imagine and fill in the space here because they wouldn't understand. They wouldn't get it. Right? So whether you were involved or not in the actual incident itself, we, because of our participation on this team and our responsibilities towards that locker room, we get it. this idea that we're all a part of this. We're all part of the same thing. We're all the same type of person here. And perhaps most cynically, and again, this is probably reckless speculation, but if you come forward and say, hey, I know who did it. I know who's responsible. It went down like this. There's a chance you could have your past dug into by somebody else. And it's this notion of shared uh, experience and, and then sort of not the positive sense of that word experience that you could be dealing with here as well, where these players maybe are compelled not to say anything because they don't want their own business poked around in. Let's talk a bit about how to how to maybe solve some of this. The federal government gives funding to Hockey Canada. Uh, about 6% of Hockey Canada's funding is, is from the Canadian government. And Hockey Canada says it didn't use any of the government money to settle with the plaintiff. Uh, the organization was questioned on this point because there was concern that taxpayer money was used to settle this. They said, no, that's not the case. Uh, last week, Sports Minister Pascal Saint-Ange uh, announced that the government was freezing funding for Hockey Canada, though, because... They wanted at least freezing it pending Hockey Canada's disclosing the recommendations from this incomplete report on the situation. Taylor, what is the government's role in all of this and how, how much power do they actually have here? Both organizations, both the, the Ministry of Sports uh, and Hockey Canada are both in desperate need of credibility here. And, and this situation smacks of something where both sides are trying to use the other to gain credibility. The federal government has had many instances where they have come forward and said, we are going to fight for gender equity in sport. We're going to fight for safe sport policies. We're going to do all of these various things. And then, unfortunately, an organization that receives 6% of their annual budget from the federal government is quite clearly comporting themselves in a way that does not promote safe sport, I'll say. So this is a situation here where the federal government has put themselves in a situation where they, if they are going to keep funding this organization in the eyes of Canadians certainly they cannot be seen to be funding settlements for victims in sexual assault cases. Mm -hmm. That one, the way in which then they spoke to the House of Commons, first of all, again, the language that was used, it it really did not seem as though the humanity of the victim was at all at at play here. I mean, I'm sure that's not true, but a way in which the statement came forward and the way it came out was essentially like they could have had that statement prepared and delivered by the Hockey Canada accounting team. Uh, which is like, don't worry, we didn't use the money, and we'll take care of it, and it's okay. Finally, on the matter of the source of funding for the settlement, at question here, we will be cooperating fully with the minister's financial audit, but I can assure you that no government funds were used in this settlement. I would like to close by my remarks. Thank you, Madam Chair. So what can the government of Canada do here to try and fix it? Well, certainly Hockey Canada cannot afford to absorb a 6% hit to their budget, so they're not just going to say, yeah, you know, 
screw you, we're not going to deal with this. So that's significant enough for them to actually feel it? Like, is demanding a bit more, I don't know, like oversight then from, or more action from them actually going to do something? Even if they could absorb the hit, and let's be honest, they probably could absorb the hit financially. There's a larger issue at play here where, and I've said this a million times to to my students and when I talk about this game itself, Hockey Canada does not own hockey in this country. The NHL does not own hockey in this country. You know, everyone in Canada owns hockey. They are the custodians of the game, right? Hockey Canada. That's why they have to listen to the federal government in this sense here, because there's this notion of eroding the public trust. If, if say, we've decided as a nation, uh, through our elected representatives, that these people are not being proper custodians of the game, it's okay to call for change. Hockey Canada execs uh, also told a parliamentary hearing last week that they'd been working on cultural issues by changing their code of conduct, bringing in more educational programs. I wonder, do you think that the, the Me Too movement actually changed anything here in terms of how sports organizations approach these situations or, or how they, they treat women? Certainly it has changed the level of seriousness with which they, they treat allegations in some senses. However, it's also caused a lot of people to become really recalcitrant in their views towards the status quo. And it's something that you'll, you've noticed in other fields a lot more often, but you'll notice a lot of people who feel like any review of conduct, any notion of we need to look at these things uh, more carefully, we need to consider how we treat women in these spaces, view that as a, I think you're a sexist. I think you're an abuser. So they feel that any review is an acknowledgement of guilt. You've alluded to the the importance of hockey in Canadian culture, and it's really it's so ingrained in how a lot of people see it as, as part of our national identity, frankly. So I guess what does all of this mean for the broader public and the way that we think about hockey? It's very, very, very difficult to market hockey as anything other than an exclusive uh, club for, for the same sorts of people that there was in 1875. If we keep having these absolutely retrograde notions about certainly secrecy, certainly attitudes towards women, if these things still rule the day in 2022, then we really can't in good conscience, I don't think, market this as a safe sport for young players to get themselves into. That's extremely damaging to the Canadian consciousness, which associates so closely with hockey. Actually, I, I want to ask you about that because, you know, in, in this entire conversation we've had, I, I wonder about parents of little kids who are in hockey, right? How, how are they feeling in light of this news? And I guess, should we be concerned about what kids are experiencing and in, in understanding from locker room culture? Short answer, yes. You again, you imagine, okay, these are world junior players, these are NHLers. Somewhere along the line, they learned what's normal in a locker room, right? At some point, they realized these types of things are acceptable. These types of things are not. These types of things I, I can tell my parents about. These sorts of things I can't, right? They learn these things. So when do you learn that? And I think it would shock people how quickly, I'm talking seven, eight, nine years old, that players learn through osmosis, learn through explicit teaching in some senses, about the secrecy associated with these locker room spaces. And I don't think that anyone who, who has observed sport at any level would say that it is normal to have to learn how to self-police a locker room full of your peers at 10 years old. And some of these habits that are developed and that have been passed down from older players and these things directly relate to the situation that we see here in 2018. And if, if we don't need any evidence to suggest that that's true because of the fact that the players themselves have enforced this level of secrecy four years on. It just shows you the bonds here that have, have, have bound these players. Taylor, thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you so much for having me. 
That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our summer producer is Zara Kozema. Our producers are Madeline White, Cheryl Sutherland, and Rachel Levy-McLaughlin. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.